A man in a backward community wished to enter the ministry and went to a clergyman to be examined. The following conversation took place. Can you read, Sam? No, sir, I can't read, sir. Can you write? No, sir, I can't write, but my wife's a pretty good writer. Well, do you know your Bible, Sam? Yes, sir, I'm pretty smart in the scriptures. I know my Bible from lid to lid. Which part of the Bible do you prefer, Sam? The book of Mark, sir. What do you like especially about Mark? I like the parables the best, sir. And which of the parables is your choice? Well, sir, the parable of the Good Samaritan's my specialty, sir. I like that one the best. Well, Sam, will you tell me the parable of the Good Samaritan? Yes, sir. I will, sir. Once there was this man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among thorns. And the thorns sprung up and choked him. And he went on. He didn't have no money. And he met the queen of Sheba. And she gave him a thousand talents of gold and a hundred changes of raiment. And he got into a chariot and drove furiously. And when he was driving under a big juniper tree, his hair got caught in the limb of that tree. And he hung there many days. And the ravens brought him food to eat and water to drink. And he ate 5,000 loaves and two fishes. One night, when he was hanging there asleep, his wife Delilah come along and cut off his hair, and he dropped and fell on stony ground. And he got up and went on, and it began to rain, and it rained for 40 days and 40 nights as he hid himself in a cave, and he lived on locusts and wild honey. Then he went on till he met a servant who said, come, take supper with my house. And he made excuse and said, no, I won't. I have a married wife and I can't go. And the servant went out into the highways and hedges and compelled him to come in. After supper, he went on and came on down to Jericho. And when he got there, he looked up and saw that old Queen Jezebel sitting around way up there, hiding a window. And she laughed at him, and, and, and he said, throw her down out of there. And, and they throwed her down. And he said, throw her down again. And they throwed her down 70 times 7. And of the fragments that remained, they picked up 12 baskets full, besides women and children. And they say, blessed are the peacemakers. Now, whose wife do you think she'll be on the day of judgment? <laughs> That, my friends, is a good example for confusion. <laughs> By the way, if you're wondering, the parable of the Good Samaritan is in the book of Luke, not Mark. Just saying. But we are going to be reading more about Luke or from the hand of Luke today in the book of Acts. But I share this with you because, in all honesty, there is so much confusion on this subject and we, in, in the church, have confused this subject with other subjects. And that subject that we're going to be looking at today is the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Unfortunately, what people have done since the Reformation, probably before, but it is most pronounced from the Reformation on, they take Paul and read him into Luke, specifically the book of Acts. And this is at the heart of the confusion. Now, I'm not saying that Acts contradicts what Luke writes. He does not. But they are talking about the Spirit, but about two aspects. Actually, there's more. We're going to see that. But we have to be careful 
not to take our understanding of Paul and read it into Luke, especially if Luke is focusing on something that Paul is not. So today, my goal is clarity. If you want to write on the back of your sermon notes, the title of this sermon is Clarity. So let's dig into the subject. It's going to cover at least two teach. It's going to take two teachings to go through all of it. But I, I first want to just say this, that all of these, th- there is, a, there, there is a, an assumption here, and that is that Luke and, and Paul are talking about the same thing. But as we look, I want to start with a review. As we look at this, Luke's main theme, he has several themes, but his main theme we find in chapter 1, verse 8. We covered this last week. But you will receive power. We're going to come back to that as you turn the page and get into today's message. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Last week, we also looked at five synonyms. You can see them here. Can I just encourage you? I'm going to read them, and I'm going to encourage you write down with every single one just any of them that are referencing Acts chapter 1 or 2 because they refer to Acts 2. 2, 4 says they were filled with the Spirit. 1, 5 calls it the baptism in the Holy Spirit. These are synonyms. You can actually find all five of the synonyms in those first two chapters. You can find them also in other places. I have them listed here, but four of them are used in Cornelius' household conversion. We're going to look at that next week, not today. And you can just underline, it's like, for example, the first one, chapter 11, verse 16, number three, receive the Spirit, chapter 10, verse 44, and so on. So, You can see that these are synonyms, baptized in the Spirit, which if you want, you can replace that word baptized with the word immersion. Because sometimes when we talk about the baptism in the Spirit, it kind of has a cliche-ish tone to it uh, because of its use. I I might even say it's overuse, just as the word saved. Um, the, The word saved, it's an English word, but we can use it so much that sometimes it, it loses its sense of vitality and meaning. And so you'll hear me often use the word rescued. That is a word that we use today. I think it, it, it gives us a fuller picture of what this Greek word expresses, and that, that's in, the, in this context of salvation. But we are rescued from our sins. So here, if you want to put underneath immersion, that would be fine. The goal then for what Luke is focusing on is an immersion into the Spirit. So he uses five synonyms to talk about this, baptized or immersed in the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, received the Spirit. And by the way, he, he uses this phrase, received the Spirit, differently than Paul does. We're going to need to see that. The fourth one is spirit poured out, the Spirit is poured out. Number five, the Spirit came upon or fell upon them. Uh, as you see in the main theme here, several verses before, he's, Jesus says, baptized with the Spirit, and then he uses one of these synonyms you can see on the second line, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, or 
when the Holy Spirit falls upon you. Now, we also looked at chapter 2, and we saw these words, evidences that the Spirit of God was doing something, and we actually saw a parallel in 1 Kings chapter 9. I don't think this was coincidental, but both those in Acts 4 were looking for this renewal, this empowerment of the Spirit, which is exactly what Elijah was looking for and received And he began what was called the school of the prophets. There was such an anointing on him that was so recognizable that Elisha begged for a double portion that was upon him. The double portion of the spirit of God that was upon him. That's what he was wanting. And and so Elijah and Elisha, apart from Moses, are known as the greatest of the prophets in the Old Testament. Go ahead and turn your page over there. And and by the way, I meant to say, with regard to the synonyms, you notice that I did not include full of the Spirit. That is something that is related but different, and so we're going to cover that in in another section of this series of the the empowerment of the Spirit. The full of the Spirit is more of a qualification of the leader. Again, we'll look at that later. Today, I want us to focus on this one element of this work of the Spirit, the empowerment of the Spirit. Now, if you see, as you turn the page over, you'll see at the top of that page, John chapter 14, verse 18. And, it, and this is Jesus' promise. He is, he's in the upper room. As he's gathered his disciples together, he's kind of giving them his last words, charges and promises. And this is, he's talking about the Comforter or the Holy Spirit. He says, for he lives with you and will be in you. Now, let me just say this very clearly. When we are talking about the baptism of the Spirit, we are talking about us being immersed in the Spirit. And for this to happen, of course, the Spirit needs to be in us. However, Luke's purpose is not to say that this baptism in the Spirit is when the Holy Spirit for the first time comes and indwells the believer. This is absolutely key. And as we look at these five things, now there's, there's more works or missions, if you will, of the Spirit. The last one is the empowerment of the Spirit. But all five of these, and this is so key to understand this, all five of them must take place with the Spirit in us. In us. Let me use an an illustration if it's going to help us, and it would be this. I want you to imagine the first five of these with the fact that the Spirit forgives, regenerates, and renews, the fact that he justifies, he adopts, that is, we become heirs or children of God, that he sanctifies, he sanctifies at our conversion, he sanctifies us in this process throughout our life, and then eventually he will sanctify us in heaven, complete sanctification. So sanctification is a a strange word, strange concept, because there are three ways in which it's used in the New Testament. That which happens at my conversion, that which happens in my life, throughout my life, making me holy and looking as I look to Jesus, and then finally in heaven when I am completely sanctified. So scripture uses this word in those three different ways. And then number five, he empowers us. All of these 
take place when the Spirit is in us. But here's my illustration. I want you to imagine how many of you have ever, well, I know all of you have, surfers as they're riding a wave. And that rave, as it's coming in, there's power in a wave. And as that wave comes in, it's only in the very last stage that the wave crashes upon the shore. It is a wave that has power in every stage, but it is different when it crashes upon the shore. And when it crashes, that is what makes, in in, in my mind, the music of the wave. See, I grew up in which we would spend weeks and weeks, sometimes as much as two months, at the beach. And we would be living in my grandmother's cottage, and at night, you would hear the waves, but the time in which you would hear them the most was when they would crash on the shore. Of course, high tide, a little bit louder than low tide, but you heard a And it was that melodious, I'll call it a song, and it would put me to sleep. And, and so I just grew up, I, I realized when we first went to the beach with my present family that I, I just sat there at night with the, the door open to the apartment we were staying in, and I just heard the crashing of the, and this is going to sound so weird, but tears began to stream down my face. It, it just reminded me so much of growing up, and I, I, I love that. I loved going to the beach, and so that's honestly one of my favorite, next to going in the mountains, one of my favorite places to vacation because I love the crashing of the waves. The crashing of the wave in my illustration is number five here. So as we go through this, I think you're going to see the imperative of the Spirit indwelling us, but most particularly what Luke focuses on, because he does not focus on these first four. He touches on them, but he focuses on number five, and that is what he calls the immersion in the Spirit. The reason why this is important is because as we look at Titus 3, 5, and you're there with me in Titus 3, correct? As we, I want us to read this verse. We need to see that the Spirit has to be in the believer for this and all five of these to be accomplished. The Holy Spirit is not just simply with them regenerating, with them justifying, sanctifying, adopting. He must be in them. And as we then move on to these five spirit reception events in Acts, and I'm going to explain that, of course, you're going to see how important this is. Number one, excuse me, Titus 3, 5, it says he saved us, not because of righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. He saved us. Now he's going to explain himself. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. How did he save us? The washing of rebirth or regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Both of these take place with the Spirit in us. Romans 8 is a well-known passage, the Spirit living in us. We're going to look at that passage next. But in this one right here, let's understand this. When the Spirit regenerates, that means that he takes you, a dead sinner. When you have faith, he brings you to life. You are dead 
in your transgress, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Therefore, for the Spirit to bring life to your spirit and make you alive in Christ, he has to deal with your sins first. So for him to regenerate you, for him to breathe life, spirit life in you, for you to come alive in God, he must first wash away your sin. He's got to do something with that sin. That sin is a blockade to life. The reason why you're dead is because of your sin. He can't bring you to life and then wash away your sins. And and so consequently, it is imperative that we call upon the name of the Lord from faith, and then the Spirit washes that sin away and then immediately brings us to life. The washing of regeneration. So Paul then is in Paul is bringing two concepts together, the forgiveness of sins and this bringing to life, and he calls that regeneration. So the washing, the cleansing, the forgiveness of sins of regeneration. So this work of the Spirit that raises us up with Christ and makes us alive in him first deals with your sin. You have been washed clean. Your sins were a barrier. They are no longer a barrier because of what Christ did for you on the cross. But what Christ did for you on the cross has now got to be applied. 2,000 years ago, that was the event. Everything, church, everything flows from that event of the cross and the resurrection. And consequently, now the Spirit is applying salvation. We then respond to the gospel as God is pouring out his grace. And then the Spirit, upon faith, washes us clean and brings us to life. But he also, it says in this verse, he renews us. He makes us a new creation in Christ. Very connected. See, we are, when we are brought to life, we're a different person. The old Mike Curtis is dead, and the new Mike Curtis has come alive. The old way that I used to live is not the new way that I do live. Now, I wish the change were more drastic, but I will have to say there is a change. There is a renewal. There is a newness again. Renewal. This is by the Spirit. Turn with me now to Acts chapter 8. Now, I'm going to be quick here, so you got to turn quickly. But in Acts chapter 8, we see in verse 9, you, however, were controlled by the flesh. But, excuse me, for you, however, are, are not, I'm going to get this right. Here we go. You, however, are, are controlled not by the flesh or sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if The Spirit of God lives in you. As we look through these five times, I'm I'm calling them events, in which the Spirit is poured out upon people and they are immersed in the Spirit or filled with the Spirit, we're going to see that this this immersion does not always take place when they are initially converted. So here is my question. Were their sins not washed away? 
if it took seven days for them from conversion to being filled with the Spirit, well, what happened in those seven days? Were they not saved? Were they not regenerated? Were their sins not forgiven? Were they Old Testament believers? Of course they weren't, church. This is the new covenant. From Acts on, everything has changed. That was his promise. When we see this delay, does that then mean to say that he doesn't justify? Look here at verse 10. It says, and if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not even belong to Christ. The spirit lives in the believer. And if he doesn't, you don't even belong to Christ. And it goes on to say, but if Christ is in you, that is by his spirit, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. That is justification. That is just the spirit living in me has now justified me. So the Spirit has got to be dwelling in me in order for my sins to be washed away, for me to come alive in Christ, and for me to be renewed by the Spirit. The old Mike Curtis dead, the new Mike Curtis alive. Now we just learned that in order for me to receive the righteousness of Christ, my sins have been forgiven. Now I receive his righteousness. The Spirit's got to live in me for that to happen too. That's called justification. We could look on. He adopts us. Skip down to chapter, excuse me, verse 15. Romans 8, verse 15. There's more here, church. It says, for he did not, excuse me, for you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. The Greek word there is adoption. And by him, that is, the Greek word is in, in him, that, so and by him or in him, we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Here is another way in which we have become heirs. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. The Spirit has sealed me. That doesn't mean that he sealed me like a, um, a Tupperware container or sealed me so that nothing can get out. It Sealed me means that God's seal of ownership is now on me. This is a God thing. He is a deposit in me that now makes me an heir. So do you see it's imperative for the Spirit to be living in me in order for me to be washed, in order for me to be regenerated, renewed, justified, adopted, and become an heir, and then lastly, sanctified, 1 Corinthians 6, 11, it includes the sanctification with these others, meaning, therefore, hey, the Spirit's got to be inside of me for me to be sanctified, that is, made holy in Christ. Now we come to this last one. And I realize that my charismatic brothers have many times erred when they have said that the Spirit of God is not even in you before you're empowered with the Spirit. That is categorically untrue. However, let's not make the mistake that we have seen repeated since the Reformation, I would venture to say even more, 
But as, Ro- as the church separated itself from Rome, it, it threw off many rituals. We're going to see that. But it also threw off this concept that the empowerment of the Spirit may very well and usually does take place after conversion. Why? Because they read Paul into Luke. Now, what I just said may not make a whole lot of sense to you. But what I mean is this. The Spirit of God is in me to be forgiven and regenerated. But that does not mean that he is in me to empower me. That is, let's not confuse the crashing of the wave on the shore with the shore that with the wave that's 100 yards out. That is still a wave. It still has power. The surfers still ride it. I don't know if it's 100 yards out, but they can still ride that wave. It's when it's crashing, you want to make sure that that's not where you're at when that wave crashes because you're going to get you're going to get smashed and if you're in Hawaii riding some of those huge waves, it can actually kill you. So you've got to get out of that tube so it does not crash on you and pound you into the sand. It can drown you as well because it, it's just so powerful. It can keep you underwater, and you're going to start inhaling water if you're down there too long. That's the power of that wave. So let me say this. That wave is the Spirit of God. Every believer has the Spirit in them. But as I say, since the Reformation, we have confused the crashing of the wave with the wave that's 50 to 100 yards out. They all have power, but you see, it's the power when the wave crashes on the shore that's so significant. Let me read to you the testimony of D.L. Moody. And while I'm reading this, turn to Acts 8, if you would. D.L. Moody shares his testimony How many of you know who D.L. Moody is? Just raise your hand, okay? An evangelist at the end of the 1800s. R.A. Torrey was his successor. He founded Moody Bible Institute, an evangelist who traveled uh, overseas, preached the gospel. Um, Thousands and thousands came. He was probably the most well-known and powerful evangelist of the late 1800s. He says this, after many years of preaching, This world, I'm sorry, this is a testimony about him. After many years of preaching, this world-renowned 19th century evangelist was regularly challenged by two women that he needed the power of the Spirit. Can I ask you, if you were in D.L. Moody's shoes, how would that make you feel? Two women come up to you. You're one of the most well-known evangelists. Pastor D.L. Moody, you need the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is before... Pentecost, okay. I'm I'm sorry, the uh, Pentecostal, yeah, the Pentecostal movement of the early 1900s. And these two women tell D.L. Moody, you need the power of the Holy Spirit. He relates, I need power. Why, I thought I had power because I had the largest congregation in Chicago and there were many conversions. I was, in a sense, satisfied. Later, however, Moody had these two women pray for him. Quote, they poured out their hearts in prayer that I might receive the filling of the Holy Spirit. There came a great hunger in my soul. I began to cry out as I, had, as I never did before. 
I really felt that I did not want to live if I could not have this power for service. Later, Moody remembers, quote, one day in the city of New York, oh, what a day, I cannot describe it. I seldom refer to it. It is almost too sacred an experience to name. Paul had an experience of which he never spoke for 14 years. I can only say that God revealed himself to me, and I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. I went to preaching again. The sermons were not different. I did not present any new truths, and yet hundreds were converted. I would not now be placed back before that blessed experience if you would give me all the world. The wave crashed in D.L. Moody's life. His successor, R.A. Torrey, founder of Moody Bible Institute, in, 19, excuse me, in 1899, strongly emphasized the need for the baptism in the Holy Spirit. He challenged, and this is a quote, if a man has experienced the regenerating work of the Spirit, he is a saved man. But, if, but he is not fitted for service until in addition to this, he has received the baptism with the Spirit any man who is in Christian work who has not received the baptism with the Holy Spirit ought to stop his work right where he is and not go on with it until he has been clothed with power from on high. R.A. Tory. Now, you're there with me in Acts 8. Do you see the, I have listed here five spirit reception events in Acts. We're only going to make it halfway through. Technically, we've already covered the first one in the book of Acts, excuse me, in the book of Acts chapter 2. And so what I'm going to do here is I'm going to put this board up here, and you make just simply check marks, just like what I'm going to do. And we're just going to ask, I'm not going to read Acts 2 again. In Acts 2, and we also want to read Acts 1, did they pray? Was prayer a part of the spirit reception event? It absolutely was, actually for 10 days, minimally 10 days. Were any hands laid on the apostles? Well, of course, there couldn't be because this is the initial outpouring of the Spirit. Who would have laid hands on them? God? Well, maybe in the form of the fire above them. We don't, that's a little bit of conjecture. We don't know for sure. So I'm going to leave that one blank. Technically, there couldn't have been. How about water baptism? Well, they were water baptized before that. So, excuse me, I, I'm going to use, I'm going to say be, B for before a for after, okay? So when they received the Spirit, were they baptized in water before that event or baptized in water after that event? That's the question that we're asking with this one. So they would, we would say they were baptized in water before they were filled with the Spirit. Was there a delay? Well, yes, there was. There was a delay between when they were converted and when they received the power of the Spirit. So I'm gonna check this off but I'm going to do it like this. I'm going to put it in parentheses only because, in all fairness, this is the first time the Holy Spirit ha has been given. So if we are going to come to any conclusion about this delay that the baptism in the Spirit happens separate from conversion, we're going to need to see it apart from Acts 2. Because in all fairness, the Holy Spirit is given for the first time. Okay? Do you understand why we're going to put this one in parentheses then? Is there evidence? That is, is there a manifestation of the Spirit 
Once they are baptized in the Spirit or filled with the Spirit or they receive the Spirit or the Spirit comes upon them or is poured out upon them. All five synonyms there? Synonyms, yeah. Uh, Yes, there is evidence. They speak in tongues, and that is the evidence. That is the phenomenon that the Spirit gives. This is an event. As we look at Acts 8, we're going to do the very same thing after I read this, but we're going to dig into it because we're going to have questions. Are you there with me now? Acts chapter 8, verse, starting with verse 12. This is Philip. This is, he is not an apostle. If anything, he's a deacon. He's not even an elder. He's a deacon, but he has had hands laid on him by the apostle to be commissioned or anointed to serve in excuse me, to serve in the capacity that he was in Acts 6. This is a new dimension to Philip's ministry. He's now serving as an evangelist. So he goes up to Samaria. Persecution against the church has broken out. And in Samaria, uh, he's preaching the gospel. And it says here in verse 12, but when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So he preached Earlier, we would have read that demons were cast out, paralytics were healed, the lame walked. And then it says in verse 13, Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. Verse 14, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. And we need to ask this question, we're going to have to answer it as we search through this, this passage for it, but why do Paul and John even come? When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon them. There's a, So receive the Spirit, come upon them, two synonyms used right there. So the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. But that doesn't mean that they had not been forgiven, regenerated, renewed. It doesn't mean that they'd not been justified or adopted or sanctified. The Spirit is in them. The wave just had not crashed. They had simply, and the Greek word there is only, all right, only. If you, you want to make notes in your Bible, write that in. That helps flesh this concept out. The only thing that had happened to them is that they'd been baptized into the, into the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them. They had already, they'd been praying. They've already told us that. Placed hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw, underline or circle that word saw, but when Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Now, I'm going to stop right there because I'm, I'm not concerned about Simon's response. I am concerned about what Simon saw, but I'm not re- concerned about his response. That's going to get into another subject. So let's go through our chart right here, if we would. Um, Philip has proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ. The people have responded in faith. They have been baptized in water, but there is a problem. They had not received the Holy Spirit. And that, according to Luke, means they had not been immersed in the Spirit. They, the crave, excuse me, the wave had not crashed. They had not been empowered by the Spirit. Was the Spirit in them? 
Yes, I would say the Spirit was. Paul tells us that. But Luke's focus is not numbers 1, 2, 3, and 4 on those works of the Spirit in the believer. His focus is number 5. So had they been empowered by the Spirit? No, they hadn't. They had not. So let's go through this. They had pr- there was prayer. When, when the apostles came, it says that they prayed for them. Do you see that? What is it there in verse um, 15? They prayed for them. Did they lay hands on them? Yes, they did. They laid hands on them. That's in verse 17. They had been water baptized before or after? They had been baptized before they received the empowerment of the Spirit. Was there a delay? The quest, that's a very good question. When the apostles John and Peter come to pray for them and lay hands on them to receive the Spirit, they had had faith and they had already been water baptized. So was there a delay? Absolutely. Now listen to this. Philip is moving through Samaria. It's not a one-hour pit stop of preaching the gospel and baptizing people. It is a campaign, for the lack of a better term. He's moving through Samaria. And when he comes to a particular town, people are, are being healed. Demons are cast out. As the gospel is preached, people are believing. They're saved. And in th- he's beginning to see, well, there's a lot of people coming to Christ. Word is sent back, not by Philip. He doesn't go. He sends somebody back, probably who went with him, sends them back because he's saying, in essence, I need reinforcements. I'm going to need to explain what I mean by that in a moment, but I need reinforcements. Have Peter and John come. And so he goes back to Jerusalem. That is at least a two-day journey. He says, guys, you're not going to believe this. Philip, he's up there, man. He's preaching the gospel, and hundreds are coming to Christ. It's amazing. Really? Did he baptize them in water? Yes. And, and are they, did they receive the empowerment of the Spirit? Uh, well, no, no, they haven't. Okay. John, let's, Peter's saying, let's, let's go. We're, we're going to go up there, and we're going to lay hands on them. They're going to receive the Spirit. So now there's maybe they got to go back. They got to tell their wives. That's going to take at least a day. The wives have questions. That's going to take another day. No, I'm sorry. But they, they're, you know, there's this. He's not going to just listen to this and say, well, let's go right now, the very same hour. They're gonna, you know what? Tomorrow morning. So that's three days right there. And they say, okay, we're going to pack up our supplies. We're heading on our way up there. That's at least two more days. We're looking at five days. Then they start laying hands on people on day six and seven. And so we're looking at almost a week from the time they're converted to the time that hands are laid on them to receive the Spirit. Had they been converted, church? Yes, they had. Had they been converted? washed and cleansed of their sins, yes. Had they been adopted into the family of God and made sons and daughters of Christ Jesus? Absolutely. Where's the spirit in all of that? Inside of them. Why the delay? Now, I grew up in a very traditional church, and I'm going to share with you their explanation. Because they understand what I'm saying here, that the Spirit has got to be in them for them to be saved. So how they, they believe, though, that the Spirit at this point is not in them because they're misunderstanding what it means to be immersed in the Spirit. 
they misunderstand how Luke uses the phrase receive the Spirit. He does not mean that they didn't have the Spirit at all. He's using receive the Spirit as a synonym for being immersed in the Spirit. Okay? Most people come to this text believing that all five of these happen at conversion. At conversion. Not an hour later or two hours later or a day later, much less a week later. So now they feel obligated. Wow, I'm reading in the book of Acts, and I see up to a week delay between conversion and the immersion in the Spirit. Why is that? And here's their response. You will not find this response anywhere in the text. There was enmity between Samaritans and Jews. Some of these Jews come to faith in Jesus Christ, and it becomes an offshoot, really a fulfillment of Judaism. And now some of the Samaritans are climbing aboard, and the apostles are concerned. What if these Samaritans start their own little cult, just like they did hundreds of years ago, in starting the Samaritan religion that was rooted in Judaism, but they don't worship at Jerusalem. They believe many different things than Judaism and the Old Testament teach. Now they're concerned this is going to happen again with Christianity. They're going to form their own cult, and we, gotta, we, have to, we have to call them under our authority so there's unity between the Samaritans and the Christians in Jerusalem. Do you understand the reasoning behind this. Pretty good reasoning. The problem, though, it's not found anywhere in the text. And this is significant. If you were Luke, wouldn't this not be significant to you? Would you not even mention it, just even a word, somewhere in the text to hint why there is this delay? Because the delay is significant. If, if this is the only place in the book of Acts where there is a delay, which I grew up being taught, and I'm going to suggest to you it is not. This is not an anomaly. This is very common. We're going to see that. Then how are we going to explain this away? God did not pour out his spirit because Peter and John needed to be, as apostles, as authorities in church, they needed to be the ones laying their hands on them. Can I ask you this? Why would there be delay for why would there be delay for the laying on of hands and praying over them to receive the Spirit, but not with water baptism? Why would not Philip say, you know what, guys? This is really significant. And you need to come under the authority of the Christian church in Jerusalem. So I'm going to have Peter and John come, and then they're going to baptize you. Baptism is significant, and if anything, that would connote a sense of authority. But Philip doesn't think that way. Maybe Philip had a plan with the apostles. Okay, guys, look, I'm going to go up into Samaria, right? And you guys know about the Samaritans. They're really bad dudes. Now, some of them actually believed in Jesus, and we read about that in John chapter 4. But you know what? I'm, I'm kind of thinking that you guys, I'm just, just test this if you would. Maybe if any of them come to Christ, maybe you should come up and lay hands on them for them to receive the Spirit. Is that really what happened? There's no, nothing in the text whatsoever that hints at this. 
what I just shared for you as far as a reason why there's a delay, that is completely imported into the text. But I'm going to suggest to you that the text actually tells me why there's a delay. It tells me. Look in your Bibles. Do you see it somewhere? Remember that verse? I had you, I had you underline the word only. In my text, it's simply. Philip had only baptized them. He had not laid hands on them. Laying hands on someone was, at this point, for Philip, it was the apostles who had laid hands on him. It would be very simple in his mind to think, well, apostles need to be the ones to lay hands on people to receive the Spirit. Can I assure you, we're, we're talking about five spirit reception events here, five events in which Luke records the power of the Spirit being poured out upon believers. But I'm going to tell you this, there were a whole lot more. There were hundreds more than just these five. Hundreds of It happened regularly. Luke just lifts out five. He's being very selective. I'm going to explain why next week, but right now, just know, he's being very selective. So this had happened many times. It was the spirit for Philip who laid hands on him to be able to be anointed for his ministry. Of course, he would think well, apostles need to lay hands on people for them to receive the spirit. I'm not an apostle, so that is not my place. If you look at the example of the Ethiopian eunuch just several verses later, he doesn't do it with the Ethiopian eunuch either. If I am reading the book of Acts, I would think, I wonder if for someone to receive the Spirit, an apostle or a high-up authority needs to lay hands on people for them to receive the Spirit. I, I, you, you, you may know this, you may not, but in the early church, Laying hands on people and praying over them for them to receive the empowerment of the Spirit was so well known and so commonly practiced by the mid-200s, it had become ritualized. Ritualized. Now, it, it, it became more so in the Roman Catholic Church, and it was called confirmation. I, I guess you're generally 11 years old, and it's got to be done by a bishop. But even in the mid-200s, we read of a writer saying that only bishops could lay hands on people for them to receive the Spirit. As we move on now to the Reformation, this whole idea of laying hands on for someone to receive the Spirit, that seems like something man would do. Is man imparting the Spirit? And so there was such a focus on faith alone, and I commend Luther and all the reformers for focusing on this subject. However, they did away completely with laying on of hands. And as we're going to see, that was, the, that was a common practice to lay hands on. So common that by the mid-200s, it became a ritual. There were, it became a construct within the, the church. That this, is what, this is the way you've got to do it. You have to have a bishop lay hands on them. So Luke, interestingly enough, anticipates this question. Is it really only apostles that have to lay hands on someone to receive the Spirit? Because Philip didn't do it. 
with regard to the Samaritans. He didn't do it with regard to the Ethiopian eunuch. And in the very next story that, that Luke tells us, the conversion of Paul, guess who laid hands on Paul to receive the Spirit? Ananias. The only description that we have of Ananias in that chapter is he's a disciple. That's it. It's as if Luke, he wants to blow this concept of it's got to be an apostle to lay hands on you. It just simply took a disciple to. So let me say this again. Why was there a delay? Simply this. Philip did not lay his hands on them to receive the Spirit. For whatever reason, more than likely, it's because he felt an apostle was supposed to do it. There is no hint whatsoever in the text that it's because there was a division between Samaritans and Jews, and they felt to safeguard this cult erupting from, the, um, from amongst the Samaritans, the apostles needed to do it. We don't even, there's not a single word that even echoes that concern. Can you put your thumb in your Bible here and turn to Hebrews chapter 6? Hebrews chapter 6. The author of Hebrews is challenging them, saying, you know what? You are still infants in Christ. You're still drinking the milk of the word. You're not ready for solid meat. And he says that milk of the word is the fundamentals of the Christian faith. I'm really wanting to move on. And if God permits, that's what I'm going to do. I want to jump into solid food. And so he begins chapter 6, verse 1 with this. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ. I want you to underline that phrase, about Christ, and go on to maturity. Not laying again the foundation. Underline that phrase, the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God. In instruction about baptisms and the, laying on of, and the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Just a few observations before we draw a conclusion. Number one, these are fundamental te teachings not about Judaism. Not about Judaism. And that is the most common answer when we get to this concept of laying ha hands on people, why they don't do it anymore. If I were to do a poll here for you who got saved in other churches, did they lay hands on you after you got baptized or just before to receive the Spirit? Probably no hands would go up. Why? It is for this reason. They saw laying on of hands as ritualistic, as something that was Old Testamentish, and so they got rid of it, even though it's throughout the book of Acts, even though we see it here. And so what do they do with this passage? That was, he's just referring to the laying on of hands in the Old Testament. But the author of Hebrews makes it clear, this is not about the Old Testament. This is about teachings in Christ, the foundations of the Christian faith. This is what, and there are six of them. He pairs the first two together, he pairs, and if you were to look at the Greek, you would see this. He pairs the second two together and then the last two together. Note this. They all have to do with salvation. Every single one of them. Re read through there. Repentance and faith. That's the re prerequisite for salvation. 
Baptism. You're baptized once you're saved. Laying on of hands could mean a number of different things. I'm going to suggest to you that it is one thing, and it's the laying on of hands for the reception of the Spirit, because that's the only one that's hinged with salvation. And baptism, what are the, the baptism that he's talking about here and laying on of hands go together. The way the Greek reads, these are three pairs here. And so it goes with water baptism. We're going to find that actually significant in Acts 19. Don't worry about that now. And then the judgment, the resurrection and the judgment, both of those happen and they are hinged on our salvation. Did you receive Christ? Did you believe in Jesus Christ? If you did, you're resurrected to life. If not, unto condemnation. That happens at the judgment in which you are now ushered into your eternal destiny. If you were resurrected, you were resurrected either unto life or damnation. Based on your faith in Jesus Christ or your lack of faith, all six of these have to do with salvation. And so when we're looking at the laying on of hands, this is a fundamental teaching in the church that I'm telling you that by the Reformation, they threw it out the window, church. They threw it out the window. I was, I was so tickled. I was reading a, an article that a man, in the, during, he was a pastor during the Revolutionary War. And I'm going to share this with you because don't let anyone tell you that the charismatic movement, believing that the baptism in the spirit is something that is a new teaching, don't let anyone ever tell you that. In the Revolutionary War, this is a Baptist pastor, and he is concerned about this thing called the baptism in the Holy Spirit or the reception of the spirit, and he uses the synonyms just like I'm doing with you right now. And he says, I need to defend our Baptist charter. Not that the Baptist charter ever guides us. Scripture is the only thing that guides us. But there are many who are speaking out against this. And I want to share with you what the charter says, but I'm going to use Scripture to prove my point. And he goes through teaching exactly what I'm teaching you right now, that the baptism in the Spirit is not the same that happens at conversion. It is not the forgiveness of sins. It is the empowerment of the Spirit. And it is given through the laying on of hands, generally, and that it is the, 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 the spirit then manifests itself. This is a, a revolutionary late 1700s. We're not talking 1960s, 70s, or 80s here. This happened 200 years ago. This man is writing, and he's writing about how the Anglicans have done away with the laying on of hands and that how that should not be. And this is important because we're trying to reach the Indians in proclaiming the gospel and how dare us choose to, as the Anglicans are doing, throw off this concept of laying on of hands. This is important. It's actually imperative. And he references this verse right here. This is a fundamental teaching we cannot give up because if we do, we will become a powerless people who will not be able to reach these Indians for the cause of Christ. And he says, lay hands on them. Allow them to receive the empowerment of the Spirit. And in my own terms, let the wave crash on the ground, on the seashore. But that's where the thunder, that's where the power hits us, and God uses this church. How can the church move forward without this power, church? D.L. Moody said, I dare not go back in my ministry before I received this empowerment. How dare I? R.A. Torrey says, no man is fit until he is baptized in the Spirit to stand behind a pulpit and preach the gospel. He must receive power from on high. That is how significant this is. And yet, we constantly hear, as you read books, 
those who, many are teaching. Laying on of hands, we don't do that anymore. Praying over people to receive the Spirit, we don't do that anymore. You just simply need to pray. God forgives you. You receive the Spirit. You're good. You're okay. That is not the teaching of the book of Acts. This actually, the laying on of hands, is a fundamental teaching in Christianity during the first century. But we, I might even say in our arrogance, have said, we don't need it. And as a result, there are many Christians today walking around. They've been forgiven. They've been cleansed. They've been regenerated. They've become a new creature in Christ. They've been adopted into the family of God. But they have not allowed the Spirit to empower them. They've never been immersed in the Spirit. Now, my time is gone. I, meant, I was hoping to be able to do Acts chapter 9. We will do that next week, and we're just going to go through this. I want us to look at this. Church, we live in a day in which if we're going to be praying for revival, how cocky we are if we assume that the book of Acts has very little to do with how we should live today. And yet very little of what's up here is practiced today. We don't pray for people to receive the baptism in the spirit. We don't lay hands on them. We do water baptism. That's great. We never expect a delay because Paul tells us that apparently they're baptized in the spirit immediately. And we, we, we don't expect the evidence, no phenomenon of the spirit, no manifestations. That's a little hokey, right? That's left field. We don't need that. Hey, we walk by faith today, not by sight. So we are told. And the church has become impotent, powerless, and yet we expect to win the world for Christ? Now, I commend the charismatic movement. Granted, it has expressed excesses, but church, at least it has called the church back to this absolute necessity for the empowerment of the Spirit.